Old Gold Club. Old Gold Club. So hello there. Welcome along to another episode of Old Gold Club at My Golden Game. I'm Mikey Burrows and delight to say on this episode, we are going all the way around the world to Australia to Carl Robinson. How are you, my friend? I'm very well. Thank you, Mikey. How are you? I'm all right. As we've just been discussing, you are in a kind of non-COVID world in a way. You are back to normal and living life. Yeah, life is is pretty normal over here. I, I think there was only one or two COVID cases in the last month. That's it. So we're we're very fortunate. Normality. Uh, there's a lot of normal stuff going on. You can go and do what you want whenever you want. So we're very fortunate. Although my family back home is is in the bubble, unfortunately, and locked up or getting released slowly now. See, so you are now the head coach of the Western Sydney Wanderers, um, Kenny Miller is there with you yeah. as well correct uh, have you has it affected your seasons at all or are you still playing as normal uh no we're still playing as normal um stadiums have been slightly reduced to 50 percent at the moment um the schedule has been condensed usually um it's probably a six seven month season now it's been condensed into a five month season but that's partly due because the Olympics, or hopefully the Olympics that will go ahead, and obviously some international qualifiers as well for the Australian national team, which is the Socceroos. So it's uh, we're just just adjusting the schedules based upon what the circumstances in the world are at the moment. So we don't complain; we just get on with it, and you know it's just nice to have football over here. Yeah, um, you've got a fascinating career because before we get onto your actual golden game. It's almost since then, you've been here, there and everywhere. I mean, is there a part of you that just enjoys travelling or are you just sick of the UK? <laughs> well, the old film is it, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, I think <laughs> is a perfect uh, example. Now, uh, you know, coming from Wales, a small place in Wales where not much comes out of Wales, um, I've done quite a bit, to say the least. If you would have said, Back then when my, my journey started at Wolves, you know, when I got the opportunity to be a schoolboy, that I was going to go here, there and everywhere. And I've been in some wonderful places and met some wonderful people with some wonderful football clubs as well. You know, I would have said, you're mad. Um, the reality is I've managed to retrieve so many goals, chase so many dreams and fulfil so much that I wanted to do. And, you know, the journey's not over yet. I've still got lots to achieve. Well, I remember talking to Rowan Ricketts doing an episode of yep. this. And obviously he's been in a roundabout and obviously spent time in Canada as well as you have. And it, he was kind of talking about that element of, you know, there are too many footballers who kind of get comfortable and just stay in their own surroundings. And it's quite nice to to be able to just go and explore and, and do different things. Yeah. And every footballer's got their own story uh, and own reason why. And, and I respect and understand why some players want to stay at one club or want to change clubs and stay in one country. You know, I didn't want that challenge. I remember sitting in a changing room at Carrow Road. You know, my last game in English football, ironically, was Norwich City against Wolverhampton Wanderers. Uh, my first game was Wolverhampton Wanderers. My last game was fitting to be against Wolverhampton Wanderers. And I just lost the enjoyment of football. You know, it's every kid's dream to go and play football. It really is. Every, everyone wants to be a professional footballer. And when you become a professional footballer, you want to play for your country. And I managed to achieve those dreams. And 
I was sitting in locker the locker room in Norwich and, you know, players had their own reasons and ideas and agendas. And there was a lot of moaning and a lot of bickering, even though they were good lads. And they always thought about the negative side rather than the positive. And I just thought to myself, if I wanted to carry on as long as I could and do something that I love doing, that I worked so hard to get to, I couldn't be in an environment where it was complaining and moaning. And I just made the decision. I wanted to go back to enjoying my football and I needed a new challenge. And that's where my, at 29, my first um, adventure abroad went because I joined Toronto FC in Canada. Well, you can tell you your time in North America because you came out with locker room there rather than changing room. You've been <laughs> well, away from the UK too long. I have motorway and highway and locker room and changing room. There were, I've got so many analogies, so I'll try and keep them at a minimum. Um, Talk to me about your golden game then. What game have you selected, which which meant the most to you? I've selected Wolves v Birmingham. You know, I didn't score too many goals, to be honest. You know, I, I had a habit of scoring against our rivals up the road, both of them, that we didn't like. I said, but there was one game in particular where I managed to get a brace and get two goals in that game. So I've chosen the Wolves v Birmingham. So this is from the 22nd of November, 1998. Wolves 3, <laughs> Birmingham 1 at Molyneux. Let me just run you through this team. Stal Richards, Curl Muscat Naylor, Sedgley Corica, Robinson Osborne Whittingham and Connolly. Um, there was a young Robbie Keane who came off the bench in that yep. game as well. For a... Uh, a huge portion of people that will listen to this, Carl, that is like a classic period, that kind of mid to late 90s, where all that kind of spending that had gone on in the early 90s had kind of come to an end a little bit. And then it was you guys, you know, with a, with a, the new breed coming through, the Nailers and Keens and Lescots and stuff eventually. But you guys just going out there and, and giving your all, I guess. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. You know, in, in my time at Wolves, there were some wonderful players. They really were. And, you know, we got so close so many times, but the, the just final hurdle set to, you know, just eluded us every time. You know, there was there was a season where we were flying and everyone was talking about us getting promoted. And the last 10 games, 12 games, we blew up. You know, there was times when we were in the playoffs and we were in form and we were confident going into it and we missed out. And it just, it, it started to become, is it going to be just one of them clubs where we don't just quite make it? And ironically enough, the season that I decided to leave and the season that I did leave, they made it to the Premier League. But I was as happy as anyone because my team that I joined, Portsmouth, we made it as well. So it, it was the best case scenario. Um, but there were some wonderful players, wonderful characters uh, and players that will go down in Wolves history because... You know, when you get to work with players, you realise how important they are to a football club. Sometimes supporters, you know, they have their own ideas and own own views on what type of players they like or don't like, because that's human nature. You know, when you're in the locker room and you're learning off these players, you understand how important they are, how valuable they are for your own development as a person and a player. Um, but the longevity in the game, these players, senior players you mentioned in that team, the Keith Curls, the Steve Sedgley's, you know, Guy Whittingham, you know, top players. Um, but you all take a little bit from her as you go along your journey as a young player, which I was at the time. 
Yeah, I mean, that's almost the element of what was this team missing? Because you had a, a long-standing, steady goalkeeper in Stowley. You've got Dean Richards, who was a Ledge. Rolls-Royce of a defender, yeah. even at that time. And then the experience, you had a little bit of kind of nastiness in Muscat and, and maybe nastiness. Simon Osborne, <laughs> in there as well. That's fair, yeah. isn't it? Nah, listen, Muzzy obviously... Australian, he he won the A League over here two years ago. I think he just just finished being in Bruges now, uh, no, in Belgium, um, Saint Truden. Um, where you know, I think he's a gen. You know, he's trying to get back to England and uh, manage in England. But great lad, Muzzy, brilliant lad, great character, horrible, horrible to play against. Everyone loved him on his team. Uh, in training, you had to make sure you're on Muzzy's team because you knew what was coming. If not, you needed your shin pads on. But great lad. Ozzy was, for me, Ozzy was one of the biggest influences in my career. Terrific player, wonderful footballer, uh, gave me advice, took me under his wing, really. Even though we played in the same position, I learned so much from Ozzy. Yeah. I say him, Muscat, Keith Curl. I was I was showing Chris Oelamo recently the footage of the Leeds FA Cup quarterfinal where okay. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank kind of pushes him in the face, yeah. goes for his throat. And there's a look on Keith Curl's face where he just pauses. And you must have seen that a few times in training, maybe, where it's like, you are not messing with Keith Curl. Correct. Near enough every day. Whenever Curly <laughs> was in a bad mood, that look, and it was just the look of his eyes to one side that made you think, holy hell, you better stay out of his way. Um, better to have on your team than against but also a Rolls-Royce because he could run all day. Good leader, understood what it was like to be a professional, demand standards, um, but such a fitness freak as well. Um, so what was it about this particular game then? You're on a good run of form going into this one. Uh, you'd been three and beaten. You'd had the big win at Bristol City a couple of games before it. So what was it about this particular match that stood out for you? Was that... The Bristol City match, was that the one where the mascots were fighting as well? Yes. If I remember. <laughs> the David Connolly's greatest ever day, four goals and yeah. the three little pigs getting it from Wolfie. Brilliant. I remember Wolfie smashing them. So that was brilliant. Um, <laughs> do you know what? I remember going into a game, whenever derbies come around, there's a, there's a, a little bit of a special feeling. You know, the, the lead up to the games are always important. And it's different. Form goes out the window. It really does in a derby game because you can be on the best run of form and suddenly, unfortunately, I think Wolves have found recently, um, meet your match and get turned over because it's a chance for the opposition or yourself to reset because form does go out the window in derby games. So it was important we were on a good run. We wanted to make sure we continued that run uh, against a really good Birmingham team, by the way. Real experienced players as well. Um, and that's probably the time when I realised but football is, every game is very, very close. And it's about the players on the day that perform. You know, sometimes you think, oh, it's managers. Sometimes you think it's better squads. But in that game, it just made me think, well, if players don't step up in a game, you're not going to win games of football. Uh, that day, I felt I stepped up, you know, and I, I was the one that got the two goals. But there were so many really good performances in that Wolves team. And every game that you went into then, I knew that seven, eight, nine of us needed to play well. And if you played to your levels that you all could, you'd win more games than you lose. I always talk to people on these episodes about the atmosphere 
and that special Molyneux atmosphere at times. I can imagine on a derby day, especially when you are fighting back, it's a special place to be. It is, and it, and it really is hard to explain because I think every every player that plays for any football club will say that they got the best fans in the world. It's human nature to say that. But when you're a supporter, you, you want your club and you feel your club, you know, is one of the best. And that's human nature as well. The reality is when you played at Molyneux in a derby game against West Brom or Birmingham or even Aston Villa, you realise there's an extra edge on that. And at Molyneux, you know, you under the lights as well. You know, this wasn't under the lights, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. But under the lights at Molyneux. Yeah, under, at Molyneux. It's a special feeling. And that feeling can never be taken away from you. And that's been with me now into the 2021, which is nearly 30-odd years later, or 25 years later. Um, it's a special feeling. And the best advice I give to people when I try and explain to them is just go. Just go and see it yourself and you'll realise. Obviously, no one can at the moment. We know that. But when you go there, you'll realise. Because it, uh, And what I love about doing these episodes is the honesty as well, because I think there is an element, isn't there, to Molyneux, where when it's bad, it can be really bad. But when it's good, it can be brilliant. And you learn that as well, you know, and you learn that as you go along because the, the supporters are there to help. And what the Wolves supporters just want is for you to have a go they want you to roll your sleeves up and they want to show that fight and passion it's a good working man's place we know that you know they work hard monday to friday to go and watch a game on a saturday that's their life and when you you know i was lucky enough to be there at 15 so i understood what it was like to be in the black country i knew you know and then you got stevie bull who's telling you every day about what it means to represent this football club and wear that jersey and you and you listen and as you as I spent seven eight years there you know it's part of your makeup the expectancy that they ask for the fans is what you demand in yourself um so you know for me it was it was one of the best times in my career this period though uh, and this game is the is a slightly strange one in in Wolves history terms because it was the period of crossover between Mark McGee and Colin Lee yeah Strange situation. Um, yeah, it, it, listen, Mark McGee was brilliant. Colin was his number two. And obviously, when you sign up to be a manager, I know this as well, you know, you are going to leave at some stage, whether it's your choice or whether it's the club's choice. And obviously, when Mark left, um, you know, Colin took over. Whether he was in full-time charge at that time, I don't, I can't remember whether he was in temporary. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but after that as well, I think Colin had bought in John Ward and John Ward then took over, if I'm correct, as well. So sometimes that happens. Number twos take over from number ones. In football, there's a bit of normality in that, whether it's right or wrong. Other times, number twos go with number ones um, because they want to... You've got to find your niche. Uh, and I've been an assistant coach. I've been a player coach. I'm now a manager. You know, And as you get older and more wiser and more experienced, you understand what you want to do. When, when you haven't been a manager, everyone thinks they can be a manager. Everyone does. When you've been a manager, you actually know what it entails because it is a lot, lot harder and a lot more work. But was there an element uh, for you? Because you scored four goals in Colin Lee's first four games. These two took it to four in four. So 
did, did Colin Lee treat you differently to Mark McGee? Did he get no. more out of you? No, not that I could. I must have been the top goal scorer in those four games, which was a surprise. Because um, I, if I scored four goals in training in a week, I'd be delighted. <laughs> never mind in competitive games. Um, no, uh, I, I built a good. The one thing I always learned through the values of my mum and my late father were the values that you have are uh, be respectful to people and appreciate people. You know, people are there, coaches are there to help. And when I was in the team under Mark McGee, you know. I was no different to when I wasn't in the team under Mark McGee. What you tend to find when you're not in the team is the assistant coaches are there to help you and support you and try and guide you and uh, help you remain confident to get back into the team. When you're in the team, then obviously the manager takes full effect and you've got to try and stay in his team. So I built up a good rapport with Colin Lee. He was an excellent coach. He really was because he had a good character about him and he, he had a good way with players. Um, and I also had a great relationship with Mark McGee as well, who I thought was an excellent manager in his own way. Different, but in his own way, he was very, very good and got the best out of players. So it was easy for me when Colin took over. When, a new, when, when the number two takes over or the coach takes over from the manager, you know, sometimes they like to change things. You know, there's a big changeover in the team. Some players think, well, the coach likes me. Uh, if he becomes the manager, then I'm likely to get more game time. And the reality is when the coach takes over, sometimes that doesn't happen. Does that make him a bad guy? No. Does that make him a bad coach? No. It's just an opinion. Um, so you, you learn. And, and the values that I had from my mother and late father were important. You know, and understanding that situation because they were good friends. They'd been together and worked together for many, many years. And, and that's part of football business. So you were 1-0 down in this game. Paul Furlong put Blues in front. And then Robbie Keane comes on. And it kind of starts the turnaround. Would Colin Lee have been a shouter at halftime? Would he have been getting in at you? Yes. Uh, but all Colin needed to do was do what Keith Curl did. is just look at you. And you knew that something wasn't right. You know, he, he, he had a big physique about him. Obviously, he was six foot three or six foot four. And he looked down at you and you thought, you know what's coming. You know, and I, I'm always one of these players that would look you in the eye you know, look the manager in the eye and then you look around the locker room and there's, there's other players that put their heads down because they don't want to make contact, eye contact with the manager because you feel that if you make eye contact with the manager, he might come after you. Um, but I was always taught, look someone in the eye. That's a sign of respect and a sign of strength. So I did. You know, many times Colin had caught my, I'd caught Colin's eye or Mark's eye and, and Graham Turner's eye and Graham Taylor's eye and I'd be shouted at. But I thought, do you know what? My job is to become a better person, a better player. And that's the way you learn. So uh, I th if I remember correctly, yes, he did shout. Uh, not in a constructive way, because there's, there's criticism that players don't like. They don't like being shouted at. It's human nature. Players don't like being yelled at. But if it's constructive criticism and there's an outcome to it and there's guidance to it, you understand. Like saying you're rubbish and you're not playing very well, what's that? That's a statement saying, yeah. Robbo, you need to be better in every aspect of the game. You need to make more tackles or you need to make more forward runs. Well, that's constructive criticism. Uh, and that's what Colin was good at. He was good at giving feedback and constructive criticism. Well, it clearly worked because you scored two <laughs> in the last 10 minutes to completely turn everything on its head. Do you remember the goals? Uh, I remember them briefly. And now and again, I think um, sometimes in 10-year anniversaries or 20-year I think it's 20-odd years now. My, my son now tries to find goals that I've scored 
because he's now 13 years of age and he can't find very many, but sometimes <laughs> on Twitter he does find them. So I, I remember seeing them maybe about two years ago uh, and they made me smile because I can't believe I scored that two good goals as well. Yeah, where do they rank in the, the list of your best goals? Probably up there. I said I didn't score many. Uh, I was more of a connecting type player and a team player rather than an individual. Uh, and you find out how important they are as when you become a coach and a manager. You know, the, the, the glue, as you call it, the, the players that probably don't get recognised as much by the fans because they don't score. You know, if somebody scores 20 goals and 20 assists like Bully, everyone loves him because he is the main man. And he is. But within that, within the framework and structure of you have a team, there's important players, whether it's the Kevin Muscats who brings the nastiness or whether it's the Simon Osborne who brings the guile. And I always thought I was a team player and I would make others around me better. So they probably rank up there in the top five goals I've ever scored. Um, but I didn't score too many, so it's not hard. Well, the first one is a lovely little layback from Robbie Keane and it's the left foot yeah. scooped to the top corner. Yeah. It's the swinger, yeah. I, I, to be fair, we used to work on it in training, lots of shooting practices, uh, right and left foot, but I couldn't strike a ball properly, drive a ball with my left foot. You know, I wasn't like Tomo. Tomo was right or left footed, you couldn't tell. Right or left back, you could play. Uh, I had to really work on my left foot, and I always used to think about technique, technique, and put curl on it rather than actually put power on it because I couldn't. Um, and it was one of them that Robbie laid the ball off, and I just managed to get my body position right and then arc it into the top corner or into the top of the net. Um, the second goal, I'm, I'm going to put out there what I think happened, and then you can tell okay. me whether this is right or not. Because this is like right. the last minute of the game, right? <laughs> and it's stretched, and they're going for it. And for some reason, you've decided that you're going to break forwards. And the ball's yep. lifted over, I think it's Chris Marsden's head. And in my head, I'm like, he's probably knackered, so he's just had yeah. a go. Because you were clean through and you thought, I'll just lob the keeper from here. I think that's fair. You know, I <laughs> people ask me what position I, uh, I used to play. And I started off as trying to be an attacking midfield, but I, I soon realised that I hadn't got the Stevie Carica knack of trying to get in the box. You know, I was more, because I learned from Aussie every day, he was, a, he was a more connecting type player. And that's what I tried to mould myself into. So I was more of a holding player. Uh, but I had loads of energy because I was young and I could run and tackle and get around people. Um, I remember breaking forward and the ball just broke to me. It was flicked over. And I remember looking up, I'd see the keeper. And yes, I was knackered. It was the last minute of the game. You know, some players would just go drive through and go around the keeper. There's no chance I could do that. I was dead on my feet and I just thought, do you know what? I hit it. And it, it's probably the, the best word I can describe. That goal was special. Because then if you look at the celebration, you know, things go through your mind and just emotion. Like uh, That's what I miss at the moment in, in the current climate with COVID is the emotion. And goals are scored. You know, they have VAR checks. The emotion, it, it's taken out of the game. Um, back then, such emotion, such elation when I scored that goal. Yeah, it was a, it was a brilliant goal. I, I absolutely love it. And you're right. It's, a, it's that clear feeling of kind of, on a day when everything seems to go for you, you know, that first yeah. one with the left foot goes top corner. So why not have a go? Yeah. And do you know what? Sometimes you don't get too many days like that. And, you know, I know more than most that, you know, sometimes you've got to roll your sleeves up and grind and you have a good performance and someone gets the headlines and you accept it because it's part of a team. It's not about the individual. You know, 
individuals win nothing. And then, you know, and that's the mantra I use. I, I say in my teams now, individuals win nothing, teams win things. And then you'll get one or two people that say, well, individuals win top goal scorers and MVP, most valuable player awards. And I said, yeah, yeah. But would you prefer to finish, get promoted or finish at the top of the table and, and have no individual awards or have the top goal scorer and finish bottom of the table? All right. And the reality is, if you're a team player, you don't care about yourself. You care about the team. And the team is the most important thing. Do you think that sums you up and your Wolves career up a little bit? I think it does. Yeah, I think it does. Um, it sums me up now, today. You know, everything I've got, everything that I ever did as a player and worked for, I had to earn it. So when people say they weren't given a chance and they, you know, it's unfair... I say to them, yeah, football is. Sport in general, unfortunately, life is. Sometimes things get taken away from you in life. You know, in sport, it's it's very, very few that go on to make it. I wasn't the best. My first year when I joined as a schoolboy, I think there were five players that got signed to professionals, to a professional forms. Chris Westwood, Gavin Mann, myself, Matthew Bywater. I think it was Quentin Townsend. Five players. I was probably the fifth best player. And I share this story with a lot of people. A year later, I was probably the only one left. All right. And they say, why? And I said, I don't know. Because I made sure that I was going to commit. I didn't want to go back to Wales. I'm a proud Welsh boy. Very, very proud of where I come from. But I'd worked so hard to get this opportunity. And I didn't want anyone to take it away from me. So I was willing to do anything. I was willing to be the best team player I could sacrifice myself but become really really important um to get where i wanted to get to and i think that summed up my walls career because we had a number of managers but i always seemed to be there or thereabouts for six seven eight years probably never the first name on the team sheet which i understood but i also the first name on the team sheet in my position i trained hard and i made sure i give him competition because my mindset was if i train properly and I can push, example, Simon Osborne. Simon Osborne's number one. I'm going to be number three or four. If I train properly and Aussie trains properly, you know, the manager has a decision to make who he wants to pick. If Aussie doesn't train properly and I train properly, I play. That was my mindset, the whole way I looked at it. And through injuries and suspensions, you always got your chance because if you didn't train properly and didn't commit yourself, how is the manager going to pick you if you don't train properly? Then a suspension comes because you've not done what you need to do. Uh, and that's how I learned my football journey. Thanks for listening to the Old Gold Club. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and rating from wherever you get your podcasts.